Welcome to this third message on Titus. This message is on Titus chapter 3. And before we get going, I'd like to thank you for all the encouragements and prayers that I've had during this short series. And my prayer and yours, I hope, is that the Lord will bless us again as we open his word. So we're in Titus chapter 3. And the theme of this epistle, as we know very well now, is a church has got to be what a church has got to be. And churches are made of people. So when we say a church has got to be what a church has got to be, um, we mean, of course, that we've got to be these various things that we're going to learn again this morning, uh, this evening. And we'll call the, the, the sermon, this message, Four Things More. Uh, in this closing chapter, we're going to learn that we've got to be social. That is, we have to be aware of where we live the Christian life. And we have to be experiential. And we need to understand and be aware why we live so differently from other people. And we have to be watchful, because as we've already learned, but as is underlined again, the, the greatest threats to the Christian church are not from outside, but from inside. And finally, we all learn that we've got to be thoughtful because we are surrounded by all sorts of needs. They're all around us all the time, but it's very easy for them to be overlooked. So that's the menu for this evening's message. And so we'll jump in straight away and we'll look at verses 1 and 2 and 8, which teach us that we've, the church has got to be social. We've got to be aware of where we live the Christian life. Now, most of the instructions so far in Titus have been to do with the church and with the family. And of course, the Christian life is lived there. But most of the Christian life is lived in a different context. You know, we're, we're citizens of a, of a country. Uh, we live with other people, we work with other people, we study with other people, we, we live our Christian lives not hidden away, but in the real world of men and women and boys and girls. The Christian life is lived on buses and it's lived on trains, it's lived, it's, it's lived in factories and offices and farms and schools and universities, it's lived in cafes and restaurants and doctor surgeries and hospitals and community centres, um, in shops and supermarkets. Um, this is where the Christian life is lived. So that's what Paul is underlining in verses 1 and 2 and also in verse 8. We, we've got to be social, aware of where we live the Christian life. Now he's not giving any new advice. His first word is remind. He's reminding them, of course, in, in Crete, that they're, they're citizens. And we know very well what he would have told them, because we read it in Romans. He would have told them that the state is God's ordinance, that God has delegated authority to the state to punish evil and to encourage good, and that we are to be model citizens of the state. But um, these... Cretans, as we've been aware, were not a very submissive sort of people. So remind them, remind them to be subject, remind them to obey, remind them that they've, 
they've got to be ready for every good work they've got to be involved in the community and be good citizens and good people although they're surrounded most of the time by unconverted people and this means of course for us that we obey every single rule which is imposed upon us at the moment because of this COVID, COVID emergency. We observe every speed limit on every road. We faithfully fill in our tax returns accurately in every paragraph and every question. We're not going to be over fastidious. One of the eccentricities of British life is, is that we actually have rules written into our rule book, into our law book, which are no longer applied. I had a good deal of my upbringing in Chester. There's a, there's a law made by Parliament years ago that in Chester, if you hear someone speaking Welsh within the city walls after dark, you may shoot them with a crossbow. Now, that is still the law of the land, <laughs> but we're not going to be overstidious. It won't do much for your Christian life. If you, if you creep round Chester with a, with a crossbow. It's still the law in Britain that a hackney carriage, which of course used to be horse-drawn, must still have a bale of hay on the roof. And hackney carriages that today are what we call black taxis. Um, it won't do much for your Christian life or witness if you insist that you won't get into the taxi until they have a bale of hay on the roof. Um, and we can be over fastidious about certain things. Some of you have children, you, your children cycle. It's against the law to cycle on the pavement. But the roads are so dangerous that most of you will encourage your children to cycle on the pavement. And so we're not going to be silly about these things, but we are going to be model citizens. So that people will look at us and say, they're just the sort of citizens that they should be. They will say that universally about every member of a true Christian church. And we're told in verse 2 about our social responsibilities to speak evil of no one. Now, Paul writing to Timothy says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But does that, is, he, is he speaking evil of someone? Well, here we've got to distinguish between a, a critical faculty which God has given us, and a critical spirit, which comes from the devil. A critical faculty is where you weigh things up, and some things are good, and some things are better, and some things are worse, and that's true of people. And a critical spirit is where you criticise someone with a view to doing them down, ruining their reputation, destroying them in the eyes of other people. It's all right as a Christian to to talk about the merits and demerits of our present Prime Minister. It's all right for American folk to, to talk about the merits and demerits of presidents. But it's not all right to speak about anybody at all with a view to ruining them and doing them down and forgetting their dignity as human beings made in the image of God and precious in his sight. And not only are we to be like that, we're to be Peaceable, says verse 2. The world is filled with arguments. The interest of most people in an argument is to win the argument, but not with Christians. The interest in a Christian in an argument is to be as peaceable as possible, to discuss anything 
anything at all, but to do it with peace and with love and respect for the, the person that we're talking to. Showing to them that they're, they're, they themselves are precious to us, as they are precious in the sight of God. Uh, this, this will surprise them, but we will always speak with gratitude and goodwill and leave every conversation with, with good wishes and in that way reflect something of the grace of God, which we know in our own experience. And we read in verse 2 that we're to be gentle. It's actually the Greek word for considerate. Now, gentle isn't a bad translation because the Greek word actually means people who aren't rough, uh, people who aren't noisy, people who aren't going around shouting and bawling, people who aren't going around slamming doors. Christians, as we're reminded several times in the scriptures, are quiet people. They seek to live a quiet and peaceable life. They're not in the business of bawling and shouting and slamming and stamping. Uh, those things aren't considerate. Who wants to live with people like that? So the Saviour was gentle. Yes, he did raise his voice on certain occasions, and so was me, we. But our, our gentle demeanor, our, our overall demeanor is a, is a spirit of quietness and gentleness. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. And he says in verse 3 and verse 2 also, we're to show all humility to all men, in other words, to all people. Um, it's the Greek word humility, which can also be translated courtesy. So we, teach, we speak to each person and treat each person as if they were of more value than we are. Uh, we treat each person that we meet, whoever they may be, not as our inferior, but as our equal and superior. Uh, this also will surprise people. And that's the whole point. The Christian life is completely different from the, the life of the unconverted, as we shall see more strikingly in a moment. Then we jump to verse 8. In the meantime, Paul has talked about some doctrinal points, which we'll return to. And he says in verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God, uh, that's us, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So we're, we're told in Ephesians that on our path as elect people of God, there are good works for us to do. As the old hymn says, there's a work for Jesus only you can do. As we wake up each day in the morning, we're to think of the path ahead and we're to know that at different points during the day, there'll be some good deed, some good work, some good thing that we can do. And that, that's what makes the Christian life an adventure. All the time we're in our daily life, we're, we're playing hide and seek, as it were. We're looking for the good work which God has placed on our path. And we're trying to discover it and, and, and to do it at every hour of every day. Because the scripture assures us that that's the way it is. It might be a little thing, it might be a big thing. But every day, at every part of the day, there's some good thing that we can do. And we're to maintain good works. So we're to be aware of where we live the Christian life. Now somebody might be asking the question, it's interesting, they might say, Paul is stressing all this, but where, 
where is the mention of soul winning? Why isn't Paul insisting that we be evangelizing everybody and trying to win them for Christ? And we, we hear a lot of that emphasis today and we're told each day we must look for an opportunity to, to win souls and I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. But that is not where the emphasis is in the New Testament. The emphasis in the New Testament is that we live so differently, so extraordinarily differently from other people that they, they notice that there's something different about us and want to know what it is. Do you know that your neighbours talk about you? What would you like them to say? What should they say? Uh, what they should say is, I don't know, that they're, they're, they're wonderful neighbours. I'm so glad they moved here or we moved next to them. I just can't think that we could have, we could have better neighbours than that. I know that they've got some funny ideas, but they, they really are wonderful people. And do you know your colleagues at work or at university or your friends at school talk about you? What do they say about you? <laughs> what would you like them to say about you? And what they should be saying is, oh, I don't know. I don't know whether I believe what he believes or she believes, but I have to say that there's, there's no one I'd rather work alongside than him or her. There's no one I would rather study with than him or her. They're, they're just so easy to be with. They're just so pleasant to be with, so, so kind, so, so thoughtful. And then that's when we get our opportunities. As Peter reminds us in one of his letters, we will get those opportunities. People will come to us and say, well, why? Why are you like that? And why don't you do that? And, and, and then we, we have to ask the Lord in a little arrow prayer for, for some courage and to tell them bluntly why we are like we are. So we've got to be social. That's the first point. Now, the second point is in verses four to seven. The church has got to be, we've got to be, experiential. In other words, we've got to be aware of why we live so differently from other people. Self-consciously aware of this. Now he told us in chapter 1 that we're to be thrilled with the gospel. And he told us in chapter 2 that we've always got to be looking back to the cross and always looking forward to the second coming. But that's not enough. It's, it's not enough just to believe the right things or to behave in the right way. Something has happened to us and we've got to be self-consciously aware of what's happened to us in our Christian churches. We should talk more about this. We should talk about Christian experience, what has happened to each one of us and how it came about in my case and how it came about in your case. The Christian life is doctrine and it is ethics, that's behaving in the right way. And it is also experience. God actually has dealt with us and continues to deal with us, as we shall now see in verses four to seven. Now, the great Augustine of Hippo, um, not the Augustine who came to Britain, who is a completely different story altogether. The great Augustine of the fourth century was a wicked man before he was converted. He was eventually converted in Milan in Italy. 
And a few days after his conversion, he was walking down the street and he saw a friend of his with whom he had sinned and sinned and sinned very badly many times. You see, Augustine was now a new Christian, didn't know quite what to do. So he walked straight past his friend without even looking at him. His friend said, Augustine! But Augustine walked on. Augustine! And Augustine walked on. Augustine, it's me! At which point Augustine stopped, looked at him and said, Yes, but it's not me. That's the spirit of the Christian life. Would you like to sit down with yourself even now while I'm preaching and sit opposite yourself and ask yourself four questions? Here's the first one. What was I like? And verse 3 tells us, You were foolish, without spiritual understanding, so was I. We were disobedient to God. We were deceived, led astray, believing the wrong thing. We were serving various lusts and pleasures. We had ha habits that we couldn't give up, and we had pleasures that we couldn't give up. We were hateful. We weren't actually very nice. And we were hating one another. Um, yeah, we put ourselves first when there was a real, real choice. Where the rubber hits the road, where there was a real choice between me and somebody else's interest, we put ourselves first. Now, if somebody listening to this sermon is saying, well, I wasn't like that. You can only say that if you haven't seen your sin. But if you've seen your sin and you look at verse 3, you say to yourself, yes, that's me. If you haven't seen your sin, of course, it's because you haven't yet been converted. And hopefully, therefore, this sermon will be used by the Lord to awaken you to that fact. We can all remember a time where we were not very nice people, not very nice before God and actually not very nice before others and not very nice in our hearts. That's what we were. Here's the second question. Ask yourself this question. What made the difference? Well, look at verse 5. It wasn't this that made the difference. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We didn't suddenly just stop and decide to, to pull up our socks and, and improve and just live a better life from this moment on because we were completely unable to do that. We were guilty. We had no righteousness of our own, nothing to commend us to God. We weren't very nice people. We were corrupt in our whole nature. And even our best thoughts were stained with the sin which was in our hearts. So what made the difference? Because we're not what we were. Well, let's look at verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Saviour, towards man appeared, what made the difference is God. God is kind, supremely kind, wonderfully kind, eternally kind. Look at it. Look at verse 5. God is love. Go verse 4. God is our, our saviour. And he did something to us. He did something at the time of the cross, but he did something in our own experience. And 
Suddenly the kindness and love of God appeared to us because it appeared to us in our own experience. This loving, gracious, kind God was, was dealing with us. Everything changed from that moment. That's what made the difference. Otherwise we'd be exactly the people that we used to be. Now look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6. How was the, how, how was the difference made? What actually happened? Well, he saved us, says the Apostle Paul in verse 5, through the, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There was a, a flood of spiritual activity whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. The, the Saviour in heaven sent the Holy Spirit. He worked in our nature. He worked in our thinking. He worked in our emotions. He worked in our will. There was this great flood of spiritual activity by the Holy Spirit through our very souls. We were submerged in the Spirit, or to use the vocabulary of the New Testament, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. We were initiated into the spiritual world and into the spiritual dimension. We were transformed in our very soul and nature by the activity of Christ as he worked in us by his Holy Spirit. And it was wonderful. Something was done in us. 53 years ago, I was preaching in Exmouth in the West Country at Easter time, special meetings for Easter. To my surprise, I, I don't know why I should have been over surprised, uh, lots and lots of the people, perhaps most of them in the meetings, were, were Methodists. And there was one old, old man who was a real old time Methodist. And as I was preaching, he was shouting out, he was shouting praise the Lord and shouting hallelujah and rejoicing and laughing and weeping. And it was wonder, wonderful to see his, his whole heart being, being moved by the word of God. Um, at the end of the meetings, he came over to me and said, young man, young man, he said, y y I can see it, I can see it. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I said, yes. He says, when did it take place? I said, well, it took place on the day of my conversion. Oh, he says, that's most unusual. Well, of course he was wrong. He's a wonderful man of God and I'm looking forward to seeing him in heaven. But it's not most unusual. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion. He floods through our soul and that from that day onwards, he renews us day after day after day. So you came to believe and then the next day you believed. Why? because the Holy Spirit was still in, at work in you. And the next day you believed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was still at work in you. He was renewing you. He's renewing you now. You and I couldn't believe another hour. We wouldn't remain anywhere near Christ for another hour. But we do through the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit, which is working inside us. And so here's the fourth question. What is your present condition? Ask yourself, what is my present condition? Well, it's there in verse 7. We've been justified. All our sins have been put to Christ's account and his righteousness has been put to our account. By grace, we didn't deserve it. He did it. The very faith by which we've embraced him and laid hold of him and by which we trust him is his gift. We are heirs. We're the heirs of God. Now, little Lord Fauntleroy was an heir. He lived in, a, in the United States and suddenly he found that he was the heir to 
Lord Fauntleroy in, in Britain. He built he his real home and his real riches were in another in another country. And he was an heir to all that. He, he hadn't known that, but then it became apparent that he, he moved into the estate. We live in this world, but this world is not our home. And our real riches are not in this world. And our great rich great 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 treasures are the fact that we have eternal life which has been given to us by God's grace alone. So something has happened to us. And, and of course, therefore, we simply cannot live like other people. We just cannot do it because if anyone is in Christ, they are new creations. Old things have passed away. Oh, behold, all things have become new. Now, if you go on YouTube, uh, don't go there too often um, because the mind takes on the shape of whatever you put into it. But if you go onto YouTube, you'll find a, a great number of, of gospel songs. There, there's one there which has been recorded by the, the Gaither Vocal Band called He Touched Me. Maybe after this service, you might like to go to YouTube and just put in He Touched Me. Now, Gaither vocal band. He touched me. Listen, shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. So the church has got to be social, and the church has got to be experiential. And now we learn from verses 9 to 11, the church has got to be watchful. In all our joys and Christian experience, nonetheless, there are dangers and the greatest danger and threat to the Christian church always comes from inside it and not from outside. So Paul is coming back now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to talk to us about conversations that take place in churches. And there's a certain conversation, a sort of conversation which we've got to avoid. It must stop. I don't think Paul is talking here about false teachers. He we talked about those in chapter one. He's talking rather about people who insist on some minor point and make it a major point. And the level of conviction which we should have for the gospel alone they carry that level of conviction into some minor area. So he says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and useless. They don't do your Christian life any good. So there may be somebody who's studying the Old Testament comes to study the tabernacle and notices that the roof of the tabernacle was covered with badger skins. And then they go to the New Testament and discover from Hebrews that every detail in the tabernacle 
we're told, has some spiritual significance relating to the gospel. But we're not told what all those details are. So this person develops a theory about the significance of the of the badger skins in the tabernacle and starts talking to people about that. Nothing wrong with that in, in, itself, in and of itself. But when you disagree or think that, that this isn't really important, that person gets annoyed. And in his mind or her mind, you're either for her, for him, or you're against him, against her. And in his mind now, there are only two sorts of people in the church. There are those who agree with him on this point and there are those who don't. And in his mind, he's splitting the church on an issue which is not a gospel issue. And of course, that attitude begins to reflect itself in the way he treats other people. Now, you think, well, that's not the sort of example that's going to happen in Belvedere Road. No, but people have fought over all sorts of things in history. Here's a Christian eating a full English breakfast and he notices some black pudding on the plate and he eats it. But another Christian nearby, also having a full English breakfast, he doesn't eat the black pudding. He says, don't you know that in Acts chapter 15, it says that Gentile Christians shouldn't eat anything which has got blood in it. And before long, he's going around the church asking people whether they eat black pudding or whether they don't eat black pudding. And in his mind, he's got two categories of people, the black pudding people and the non-black pudding people. Now you say, that's ridiculous. It happens. Baptists in Wales once split on the following issue. Should you be baptised backwards or forwards? And they carry a level of conviction into that, which should only be reserved for the gospel. In my younger years, there was a lot of fighting in churches about whether women should wear hats or headscarves or whether, whether they shouldn't. Um, there was strong, strong feeling about this. And often there were arguments in churches. Now, the, the gospel isn't about things like that. And if 1 Corinthians chapter 11 actually is not about that at all. Um, but that isn't the subject of this sermon. And now in these days we have people saying we should only we should only sing the old hymns which have been proved to be a blessing to people through the centuries. And there are other people saying the church has got to move with the times. We really shouldn't be singing old hymns at all. We should only be singing new hymns which really speak to our times. And there's strong feeling on these issues. Now. There are some people who develop this strong feeling. They've got a view on a particular minor point, but they make it a major point and they won't let it go. And although they're asked more than once uh, to cool it and just to lay off, they won't. And although they're told, you know, these things aren't as important as that, and that you try to win them back to seeing that only the gospel is really important, uh, they won't let go. They won't let go on this point. And now there's discomfort and disagreement in the church, all caused by someone labouring a minor point. If someone does that, says the Apostle Paul, and they won't be corrected, and you've tried to win them over a couple of times, and you've asked them to stop a couple of times, and they won't let go, have nothing to do with them. And that, by the way, is a command. Now, obviously, if they have a change of heart later, and that changes everything. So why? Why should we have nothing to do with them? 
Well, says the Apostle Paul, they're warped. Their minds are twisted. They've, they've lost the sense of proportion of things. It's useless arguing with them. They won't change their mind. They won't let go. They insist. They become unpleasant. They're sinning, says verse 11, because they're dividing the church over an issue which is not an issue of the God's law or God's gospel. And they're self-condemned and there's no, there's no need for us to condemn them. The word of God is consistently clear. Only the main thing can be the main thing in a Christian church. And when that ceases to be the case, the church is in grave danger. So the church is social. We live it. We live the Christian life in a, in a real world. The church is experiential. We reflect on what God has done for us and in us, and we're no longer the same. And the church is watchful because there are threats inside it which actually threaten its very happiness and sometimes its existence. And Paul closes his epistle with, the church has got to be thoughtful. It's, we've got to be aware that all around us all the time are all sorts of needs which can easily be overlooked. Paul is thoughtful. Look at verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Uh, so Titus, I'm going to ask you to leave the island of Crete shortly, but I'm not going to leave the churches abandoned. That's thoughtful, isn't it? I'm sending to you Artemis, or it might actually turn out to be Tychicus. So Paul is thoughtful. These churches are very vulnerable. They've got a lot of growing to do, a lot of things to put right. He won't leave them without someone to help them. But he's asking Titus to be thoughtful. Paul is an older man now. He's not always well. In fact, he's never well. He's been through terrible experiences for the gospel's sake. He's going to rest up during the winter. And this elderly Christian, this active and exemplary Christian, needs some helpful company. And he's asking Titus to give it to him. He's asking Titus to be thoughtful. And verse 13, the churches as churches are to be thoughtful. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Zenos was obviously an itinerant preacher, previously a lawyer. Apollos, which we know about, more about from the New Testament, he certainly was an itinerant preacher. And the custom was that when a preacher came preaching the gospel, that you looked after him during the time he was with you, and then you made sure that his fare was paid to the next place and provided all his needs for him in advance so he could arrive safely in the next place. That was thoughtful, wasn't it? Years ago when I was, Doll and I were very poor, I went to, to, to preach at a Christian union on the other side of the Pennines. This is the days before, cap, before credit cards, before debit cards, um, before electronic payments, the days where everything was pretty much done by cash. So I got on the train and went over the Pennines to speak to this Christian Union, knowing that I didn't have enough money to get back. And I'd taken out all the money that we had, and that was that. But I knew at the end of the meeting, as always happened, I'd be given something and that would pay my fare home. 
we had a very blessed meeting, by the way, and I remember it well with, with affection. But I also remember the journey back. I didn't actually have enough money to get back, but I did find I had enough money to get to Edge Hill Station. As I left, the someone, one of the students said, um, we'll be sending a cheque on to you. Uh, I thought, well, it's no help to me now, but, but I found I had enough money to get back to Edge Hill. So I got back to Edge Hill and was able to walk from Edge Hill down, down to the Dingle and, and be home. It was rather a late hour when I got there, but that wasn't thoughtful, was it? Now, they're young Christians by definition, if they run Christian unions in universities, and I'm not bitter about it at all, but it wasn't thoughtful. So we've all the time got to be thoughtful. Is there, is there some need facing me which I haven't spotted? This is, this is the spirit of the, the New Testament church. Each believer is to be thoughtful. Look at verse 14. Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to, to be devoted to them. To have their eyes open. It's, Jesus went about doing good, so must I. What good can I do today? To meet urgent needs. Some people lack daily necessities, and it may be within my power to help meet them. Let me do it. That they may not be unfruitful. The Lord doesn't want you to live an unproductive Christian life. We're told in Corinthians that some people are saved as by fire because all our work will be tested by fire to see what quality it is. This will take place at the last judgment. Now here's a ship crossing the Atlantic and a fire bursts, breaks out. And when it eventually gets into New York Harbor, uh, there's little left of the ship except the hulk. Virtually, well, all the cargo that it's been carrying has been burnt up. Now some people will arrive at heaven's door like that. They're true Christians but they've lived in such a way that they actually haven't done anything of real value in their lives at all. It's all been wood, hay or stubble. It's not, it's not really been worth very much at all. Some Christians are like fig trees with plenty of leaves. They look really fruitful, but there's not a fig to be found. Our good works are like pounds being put into our heavenly bank account. And some people have an account, but they've got little or nothing in the account and yet we follow the saviour who is so thoughtful his miracles were virtually always done as acts of of mercy of love of grace of thoughtfulness now, we can't work miracles but we there are needs on our path all the time every day and paul is insisting that we be be thoughtful keep putting myself in other people's shoes as far as it's possible to do it and the final verse shows that paul's friends were thoughtful all who are with me greet you that was nice wasn't it paul's writing a letter to titus and therefore to the cretan church everybody is with paul at the moment of writing said so wants to send their greetings that's thoughtful titus is to be thoughtful titus Greet those who love us in the faith. Say you've got a letter from Paul. Greet all the Christians on, on my behalf. And then Paul says, Grace be with you all. He sends his own personal greetings. Greetings are thoughtful. Doll and I and, and my mother were once on holiday in the Lake District. And there was no gospel-believing church anywhere near where we were except a large, very large, you know, charismatic church which met in a very large hotel. So we, we decided to go there on, on the Lord's day, and we arrived. 
and there were hundreds of people there and after a, a, over an hour and a half we left um, my mother was elderly and tired out and we, the sermon hadn't even commenced by that stage and we arrived and we left and not a single person spoke to us not one I'm not bitter about that this is just an observation but that wasn't thoughtful was it it wouldn't be thoughtful would it to be in a church where you, you didn't greet people and people didn't greet you where the old didn't speak to the young and the young didn't speak to the old where certain people always sat on one side and never ever mingled with people the other side that wouldn't be thoughtful it wouldn't be a good reflection of the gospel and the gospel behavior comes right down to things like that so four things more we've learned the church has to be social experiential watchful and thoughtful and that's how paul's letter to titus ends martin luther the great german reformer loved the epistle of paul to titus titus he wrote is a short epistle but yet such a concise summary of christian doctrine and composed in such a masterly manner that it constitutes all that is needful for Christian knowledge and life. What do you think of that? Would you agree?